plan has been developing as we've recently wrapped up the book of Judges that Matt had been leading us through, and I believe he is going to be starting with 1 Thessalonians next week, but I can't promise anything. So that's the latest discussion we had, but things are still forming um, as he continues to discern God's heart for us together. You can open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll begin reading there in just a moment. Before we do, I want to let you know about a, a scientific paper I saw an article on that claims octopuses are actually aliens from outer space. Octopuses are from outer space. I know that sounds like the opening of a cheesy science fiction movie, but it's actually the main part of an argument in a recent peer-reviewed research paper titled Cause of the Cambrian Explosion, Terrestrial or Cosmic, that appeared on the origins of life on Earth, published in the journal Progress in Biophysics, and molecular biology. The paper suggests that life began thanks to retroviruses raining down on Earth, literally falling from space and adding new DNA to Earth's genomes, causing further mutations. But the real attention grabber in the article is when the researchers discuss the arrival of cephalopods, claiming certain cephalopods like octopuses, squid, and others arrived on the planet by falling from space, frozen in a kind of stasis. They write, the possibility that cryopreserved squid and or octopus eggs arrived in icy bolides several hundred million years ago should not be discounted because the octopus and related creatures benefit from biological features they identify that appear to have been derived from some type of pre-existence. Another medical researcher who was reviewing their work pointed out that while there is indeed a lot of evidence that makes this thesis plausible, the evidence is not definitive and only adds to the mystery surrounding the origins of life on earth. I admit this was hard to resist. (laughs) On the heels of last week's passage highlighting scoffers deliberately overlooking the realities of God's acts of creation and judgment in history. As someone brought up in our care group discussion this week, it it brings to mind Paul's indictment in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. For many in our day, the most plausible reasoning for anything unexplainable in a worldview that is devoid of God is aliens. Nature is too mysterious for us to make sense of. But as a believer, just as concerning and perhaps the reason aliens seem like a better bet is that common conceptions of God are of a being not much different than ourselves. After all, isn't that why Paul's scoffers were discounting the return of Christ? If it were us, we would have come back already. Things are such a mess that surely by now he would have returned and made things right. If he was truly a loving God and a just God, how could he stay away so long? while things seem to get further and faster off the rails. We can't fathom a God that has a different way of thinking or a different timeline than the one that makes the most sense to us. So with our superior deductive powers, we end up with octopuses from space and a God no bigger than our ability to reason. Peter wants to point us to a God who is greater. Let's look together at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. This is as some count slowness. But is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish. But that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The first thing I think Peter wants us to see in these verses is that God is not like us. He has a different relationship with time and space and matter. 
what was a chief error of the scoffers in the preceding verses that we saw last week. They deliberately overlooked, he says, the creative and destructive power of God's word. So this next phrase should particularly catch our ear when he says, but you, beloved, do not overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter's audience is the beloved churches that he helped plant and care for. Yet he recognizes they too may need to recalibrate their view of who God is. He's responding to critics that are doubting Christ's return because they assume it should have happened by now. Peter seeks to expand his reader's perspective by directing them to Psalm 90, the psalm that we sang from this morning. The first four verses, Moses, author of the song, praises God this way. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Peter and Moses in this psalm both highlight that God is not like us. He has a different relationship to time than we do. Peter tells us that time can practically stand still for God. A day is as a thousand years to him. He can be in each moment with every person on the planet all at once. He is not rushing from one knee to the next as someone who can't quite keep a grasp on all that is going on or that is forever one step behind. A day is as a thousand years to him. He doesn't miss a detail in all that is going on. Nothing escapes his notice. Each moment is important to him. He can be in a single day fully there. And yet a thousand years is also as one day to him, or like a watch in the night. Generation to generation, he has a big picture perspective on time. He knows the end from the beginning. He is not worried or caught off guard by how events unfold. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not changed by the passage of time or the events in it. Though it's impossible for us to truly fathom, he interacts with us in time, yet is not bound or restricted by time. 
our linear, linear experience with time, one moment after another, day after day, year after year, is something he is intimately involved in, yet also seemingly outside of. On a human level, we can relate to different perspectives of time in a small way, different perspectives that come with varying experience and maturity. For example, when our girls were young and my parents would visit from a couple states away, we would often prepare them by telling them Grandma and Grandpa, or Yum Yum and Bumpa, how they're known in our home, are going to be here in two weeks. But for them, that was a conception of time that they did not have. It might as well have been two years because it wasn't yet. So we would make paper chains and have that uh, number of chains be the number of days until they came. And each day we would tear one off so that they could have something concrete to understand how far away it was. But even on the day that they were to arrive, it seemed that time just stood still for them. Even though they might know the time that they were to arrive, they would look at the clock, whether it be two hours away or 20 minutes away, and thinking, where are they? Are they ever going to get here? my parents were to arrive late, we would be in utter despair. Colleen and I had a different relationship to the same time. Maybe because we were still trying to get ready. But also because with maturity and understanding and experience, there was a different relationship to time. And if my mom would call and say they were 30 minutes away, we could relate that to the girls, but again, that concept was difficult. So we'd have to say, 30 minutes, it's, it's one blues clue away from when they'll arrive. And I recognize that that is a very outdated kids show reference, and I am happily, blissfully unaware of what the current ones are. So, those truly are a land where time stands still. But even for my parents, observing us as they would arrive, there would be a different perception of time as they would see me, perhaps, holding one of our girls and be thinking that it wasn't that long ago. Little Aaron was in their arms. Different experiences, different conceptions of time. Yet, such small differences in perspective really are light years apart from the different experience of time we have from God himself. Because like Peter's reference to Psalm 90, the takeaway is not going to be for us a thorough understanding of how time works in relation to the eternal one, but a humbling reminder 
that we cannot understand everything about him because he is altogether different than us. The one who brought forth the mountains and formed the earth is exponentially different than man whom he returns to dust. He has a different relationship with time and with space and matter. We will get to verse 10 more in a few moments, but it is worth pointing out that God doesn't only relate differently to time, but space and matter as well. Peter says, when the day of the Lord comes, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. Friends, this is not a description of a small God, of a powerless God. We can't imagine an existence apart from this stuff that's all around us. And yet he is not bound by it. It is not eternal. He and his word are eternal. He is altogether different. When he returns, nothing will stand in his way. Everything we see and know and think is significant will be dissolved and pass away in a moment. He is not and will not be constrained by time or space or matter. He is not like us. He is the Almighty, make, the Almighty One, maker and unmaker of heaven and earth. The second thing Peter wants us to see is that God is not slow. He is purposefully patient. And we should be grateful he is. Verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We live in such a fast-moving society. We don't like waiting. Amazon Prime is now our new benchmark for how long things should take and how we count slowness. But impatience is nothing new. Peter was dealing with charges that he made up Christ's promise to return because it hadn't happened yet after 30 years. He wants his readers to understand that God has a different relationship with time than we do, but also that God has a really good reason for taking his time with this particular promise. He is not slow in the sense that he is not able to bring about what he has said, but he is deliberately taking his time for our sake. He is not slow, but patient. 
We should long for Christ's return because our great hope is to be with him forever. And when he comes, he will deliver us from the conflict and brokenness, pain and suffering of this sin-wrecked world. He will right all wrongs and undo evil and all its effects forevermore. He is the change we need. He wants us to want and pray for His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. But ever since His promise, people have been tempted to say, Lord, why not yet? How can you wait any longer? Because we think we know better how things should unfold. Because we are blinded by our limited vantage point and can't see a proper reason for him delaying any further. When God finally says, enough is enough. Yes, every evil will be stopped forever. The devil and his angels will be thrown into the lake of fire and sin and suffering. Their dark reign will end. But you know what else will end? The opportunity to repent or seek forgiveness. The ability to receive mercy instead of wrath. Hope for our unsaved loved ones and neighbors to come to Him. Why does God wait? Without a doubt, there are mysteries hidden from us that are part of the answer to that question. But what we do know is that the hand of God is only slow in as much as His heart is patiently seeking to save the lost. Waiting time on His schedule is not wasted time. He hasn't returned yet because He wants us to dwell with him forever we need to recognize this reality God is not reluctant to save he delays his judgment he is seeking to be slow with it but he is eager to show his mercy And his kindness to us today, now, to extend forgiveness to the sinful and the unworthy. Dane Ortland writes, The high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and initially instantly withdrawing. This is why we need a Bible. 
our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. Christ has not returned because he has a different agenda than us. The Bible presents God as gracious. He is also just and will one day judge the earth in righteousness. But for the present time, he is merciful to sinners. Christ has not returned because God is patient towards us. He is in no rush to condemn anyone. He does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. May we not neglect so kind a gift or despise the mercy of God. Not for ourselves and not for those God has placed around us. Scripture teaches us that God is sovereign over all things and that he sovereignly uses means to accomplish his divine purposes. And he has revealed that as long as this world remains, it does so because he is using this time to continue to draw sinners undeserving of him to him. And his great commission calls us to reflect him and his purpose for this time by joining him in his redemptive mission. Our current care group studies with the saturate material comes from our desire to grow in this and understanding this call that God has placed upon us and for us to grow both in heart and in our practice. God's present patience is for the purpose of preventing as many as possible from perishing. The third thing Peter points out to us is that Christ's return is certain. He is patient, but he will come again. Both are promised. There will be a day when God says, I will delay no more. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter just told us what we looked at last week in verse 7, the day of judgment and destruction is coming for the ungodly. Though God is patient, not all will come to repentance. 
Not because God is eager to pour out his wrath. He is incredibly patient. But because as we read from Romans 1, man suppresses the truth about God and what he has clearly revealed to us. And we have no excuse. When the day finally comes, none can charge God as the reason for their destruction. Don't delay. He desires you to come. Peter is in line with the Old Testament prophets who saw the day of the Lord as one of universal upheaval. Isaiah in chapter 34 declared all the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll and the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Peter declares the elements of the universe will be destroyed by fire. Nothing will escape his refiner's Fire, not even the stars or the heavenly bodies. And I assume this is true of others in this room, but I have to acknowledge when I read this that I underestimate the severity of the day of the Lord as much as I underestimate the Lord himself. I do not see how great he is. Recognize all that he is capable of. I too quickly forget and think he is no bigger than what I can imagine him to be. Dick Lucas writes, This blistering destruction is so unimaginably vast that we begin to see how futile it is to think that we can bring about Christ's kingdom by mere revolution or social change, however desirable change may be. Nor could anything as relatively small as a global nuclear holocaust or climate change account for the universal meltdown that Peter envisages. Global Warming doesn't scratch the surface of what is to come. The whole cosmos is going to be consumed. Stars and planets, people, trees and oceans will all catch fire and dissolve. There will be nowhere to hide on that great and terrible day. Everything will be laid bare. Every Thing and everyone will be exposed. Every deed. Finally, Peter wants us to see that Christ's return is surprising. And this may sound odd since our last point was that his return is certain, but it refers to the fact that Peter says. The Lord will come like a thief. A picture that is not unique to him. It's one that Paul 
uses in Thessalonians, and Jesus himself uses multiple times in the book of Revelation. Peter heard Jesus declare that no one knows the hour, not even the sun, and tell numerous parables about talents and virgins and stewards that highlight his return coming at a time when those who are waiting for him do not expect. Each knew he would return, but not all were ready when he did. When Christ returns, all will be caught unaware, but none should be caught unprepared. The point of his coming, being like a thief, is that it will be sudden and unexpected. Though we know it is coming, the time will be a surprise and catch the world unaware. And for those that have not prepared to receive him as king, what a horrible shock that day will be. Nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. Even death cannot shield the unrepentant from his righteous judgment. On that day there will be no barrier or relief or further delay for any who have chosen to live without God's Son as their mediator and Savior. All will be caught unaware. But none need be caught unprepared. This terrible day has not come yet. So remember that his current patience has a purpose. We need to proclaim the good news of Jesus to all those around us because God's present patience is for the purpose of preventing as many as possible from perishing. We need to pray for the gospel's advance in Greenville and South Carolina and to the uttermost parts of the globe. There is no hope for our neighbors or family members or those halfway around the world apart from the Savior who died for us and rose again and sits right now at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf until he returns in glory. A lost and dying world will not know him without us telling about him. Until he returns, let us pray. Let us fund. Let us go. We're called to plant churches that will be faithful to make more disciples and plant more churches and make more disciples. May God help us in this glorious task that he calls us to join him in. But I also want to point out that Peter wrote this letter to his beloved churches saying, he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, meaning he expected. There's, there were those within the church that were not yet 
truly prepared. Those in the church that assume they'll get in on the basis of good attendance, good behavior, or good parents, there is only one way to the Father. We must humble ourselves and recognize we are not it. He alone is our hope and our salvation. Some need to repent of known sin, while some may need to repent from thinking that we are good enough as is. Look to the God who's greater than we have imagined who has chosen to delay judgment that his great mercy and patience might transform all who call upon his name. Recognize the purpose of his patience and come to him today. Let us pray together and if the band could come. Lord, for all who have benefited, who have come to know through your patience, your great mercy for us, would you fill our hearts with gratitude and amazement at your great love? Would we be not cold or dismissive of how mind-blowing your affection towards us is. That we who are so undeserving would know your pursuit of us, your drawing us into your family. Oh, may we rejoice and celebrate and give thanks. And would you help us to not keep this good news to ourselves? to share with those around us, to not be ashamed of your gospel, but to make you known and the purpose of your patience. For those that don't know, Lord, that have not yet given themselves to you, would you awaken their hearts? Would you illumine their minds? Would you see Would you help them to see that great purpose you have that they too might come to repentance and be joined to you forever. In your great name we pray. Amen.